Hello and welcome to The Why Podcast, a new series from Think at London Business School in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Brewis, and for this episode, my guest is Kathleen O'Connor, Clinical Professor of Organisational Behaviour and Director of Executive Education here at London Business School. Kathleen is an authority on negotiation, conflict management and collaboration, who teaches on the Senior Executive Programme and Women in Leadership, as well as on degree programmes. And today we're going to talk about empathy in negotiations. She's going to talk us through her paper, The Influence of Weight Bias on Process and Outcomes in Negotiation, which she co-authored with Josh Arnold of the Department of Management at California State University and Eric Gladstone of Roku in California. Well, Kathleen, thank you for being here today. So it must have been a really interesting topic to explore People who are overweight are discriminated against. You know, we, we all know people make those judgments that they're a bit lazier or less intelligent, even less good at their job, self-indulgent. None of this is nice, but it's, you know, it's what happens. And in the workplace, you say in your paper, you know, how it's harder all the way along. So right from getting an interview in the first place to being paid fairly. And you include this statistic about in a survey of white women, if you're 64 pounds above the average weight, which is four and a half stone or 29 kilos for people who don't understand pounds that that was linked to a nine percent lower salary which is just extraordinary so I'm interested to know why you decided to look at weight bias but also why you're interested in negotiations more generally and in fact probably it's a bit of a silly question but what do we mean by negotiations even I mean it, it always sounds a bit grand like you know trying to get a child back from kidnappers or brokering a peace deal between two countries that have been enemies for decades can you just give a bit of context yeah, thanks for the questions and thanks for having me, Kathy. So let me start with what is negotiation. So yes and yes, it could be the uh, negotiating over in the hostage situation, the having that conversation to get your kid back. It could also be over, right, ancient disputes over land rights. When I think about negotiation, I'm talking about any kind of situation where two people or teams of people are sort of sitting across the table from each other and they each are trying to get their interests met. And one side is making some demands and the other side is making some demands. And the job of the two sides is to figure out where to cooperate and where to compete. So we call that kind of a mixed motive interaction, which separates negotiations from other kinds of group communication. So I've been studying negotiation for my entire career. I started way back in the 1980s. I worked for the United Auto Workers Union and I worked for one of their locals when they were negotiating a contract. And so I got really interested in contract negotiations. And so I applied to graduate school to study negotiation and I you know, was a little bit flying blind. I wasn't sure that was a thing. It turns out it was. And I really did build a career around understanding what helps people and teams reach better deals and what gets in their way. So it's, as you suggested, it's highly practical. It happens a lot. It happens every day. We negotiate constantly over everything, whether it's the time we're going to show up to something or whether we're going to go to one family's home for Christmas or another family's home for Christmas. There are trade-offs that we make. There are positions that we assume. So that's negotiation. The interesting thing about negotiation is that it's really rich. I can study how people speak to each other. I can study things around the tone of voice that they use. 
I can examine their accuracy with regard to kind of the other side's interests and priorities. You can look at emotion and cognition and behavior, and it's a really, really rich setting. So the reason I did these studies around obesity is because I got really interested about 10 years ago in the question of immediately when a negotiator sits down and makes eye contact with a person across the table, what happens in that moment? What happens in that split second? What is that snap judgment? And does that snap judgment follow the negotiator across to the end of the negotiation and with consequences for their outcomes, the quality of the deals? So that's where it started. So this is even like before anyone speaks or lays out anything. Literally, you you walk into the room and there they are, and you're just faced with someone and you start making assumptions about them. Completely. So I had done studies where we look to see when one person threatens another or when you're under stress, what happens. And those are very interesting studies. But I, I started to think differently about how much information is in that first visual impression. And it turns out other psychologists show a lot of information. So that got me interested. I studied obesity, which we're going to talk about today. I studied beauty, how being attractive helps you in the workplace. I studied the femininity of somebody's facial features and how that affects them. I was really hungry to know more about before a word is said, an offer is made, the introduction has happened, how are negotiators and people set along the path? And the way that this makes a difference is to do with the assumptions that you make about someone. People are then going to sort of go in hard or not based on all these sort of ideas which they're then assuming that you, they know about you, which may or may not be true. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, you mentioned just a moment ago that when we human beings see someone who's obese, we make all sorts of attributions that are well below our consciousness. The attributions we make about laziness, about how intelligent someone is, and we're making these attributions about people all the time because that's what we do as humans. We see other people and we try to make sense of it so we can anticipate how we're going to interact with them. So yeah, immediately these kinds of assumptions are made. And by the way, this is part of what we said too, they're very sticky. So once you set that expectation for yourself, I'm assuming someone is, why that is so powerful is that then I treat them that way. So Kathy, I would treat you. If you show up and you look like someone, I make an attribution, well, Kathy is lazy and not very smart, which would never be the assumption. Um, If I were to make that assumption, I treat you in that way. And then guess what? You respond in that way, right? Because you and I are kind of responding to each other and look, now we've got a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and also you talked about mirroring and the fact that people sort of mirror in, in the same way that like apes mirroring each other's body language and emotion and all that kind of thing. Smart people do that, right? I mean, it's a very, very easy way of building rapport. The best way to build rapport is to start to mimic how others are behaving. And again, it's all below consciousness. You start behaving like I am, and because of podcast, others can't see that I'm waving my hands around, and you start waving your hands around, and I think, there's just something about Kathy I really like, right? Well, you're showing up like I am, so no surprise. And another thing that you talk about is empathy. So how does that come into this? What difference does that make? So the studies kind of came together really beautifully. I was very interested in those snap judgments that people make looking at someone else's face. 
But I was also interested in when do people approach a negotiation or an interpersonal interaction with generosity, with gentleness, and when do they not do that? And so it was a, a really nice coming together. So our idea was that empathy has to be triggered, that it's not simply about I'm empathic, I go into a negotiation, and I treat you with empathy. And some studies had already been done in negotiation, and there were very inconsistent findings about empathy and how it matters. And a lot of studies showed that it doesn't seem to matter. And we thought, that can't be true, but I think it has to be triggered. If you see someone suffering, if you see someone vulnerable, that should now catalyze you to think in a more empathic way about that person. And indeed, that's what we found that when people see someone across the table who seems vulnerable or needy, they're much more likely to be able to reach out with that generosity and gentleness. But if the other person doesn't present that vulnerability, then empathy is not likely to, to play any role at the negotiating table. So let's talk about this particular study looking at people who are obese versus not. Can you just describe briefly sort of how you did it and what it looked like? Yeah, you know, there's a pretty rich literature, particularly in sort of applied psychology, workplace psychology. You mentioned a couple of the findings at the top of the podcast. And weight is a stigmatizing condition. So obesity is obviously, it's a stigmatizing condition. And you've noted some of the ways and the mechanisms by which it stigmatizes people. They earn less money, they have fewer social interactions, whatever. And so we thought it was a really interesting way to look at empathy, to study the impact of empathy. So we use photographs. We simply use photographs. And there's a, there are rich databases around the world of faces. And we simply took a face. We used a, a white man and a white woman. And we used a kind of a Photoshop-y sort of a filter. And we made the face either trimmer looking or heavier looking. So it was very much about the face. And then we could have people judge these photographs. In our very early work, we had them judge the photographs for things like obesity. And once we had a set of photographs that were distinctive, the non-obese person was rated as very low in obesity, and the obese person, the photograph, was judged as high in obesity, we knew we had something there. And we also, by the way, collected other data about people because obesity is not considered to be an attractive aspect of an individual. So we had to, we wanted to make sure that those were, again, the same for the obese men and women and for the non-obese men and women. So we had to do a lot of kind of careful crafting of these photographs, but that's what we started from. And so that's just sort of checking that you are measuring specifically how people are reacting to someone they consider to be obese or not, rather than anything else creeping in that you haven't thought of. That's exactly right. You have to control for everything else. And so we were, we controlled, we asked questions of our subjects about these faces about these people and we asked questions about how smart they were how influential they are how friendly they might be we just wanted to make sure that the only difference here was on obesity and if there were other differences we could statistically control them so we knew that if we saw differences it was going to be rooted in the difference around obesity so then you had these two faces you then had people negotiating against what they thought were these people, but it was actually computer-generated responses. It was. So it's not unusual, or certainly wasn't uh, when we did the research, to have our participants come into a laboratory and be seated at computers and have them interact across the computer. 
because you can control so much of the interaction that way. So it's a really easy way of doing some things and a well-regarded method. So all we did was say, this is the person you're negotiating with, and we could give them that photo, and this person is in the other laboratory. And then we tried to make it as realistic as possible in terms of how quickly the other side responded and, and that kind of thing. But we could absolutely control the face that they saw. And the thing that they were negotiating around was how much it would cost them to rent an apartment over the summer. Is that right? Yeah, that's a pretty classic one. The role play was around renting an apartment. And those are really fun. So I've built lots of those over the years, just these very different kinds of scenarios. And that's one that works really nicely with the population that we often have in our laboratory. It's something that they're familiar with, but maybe not expert in. And it gives us a chance to sort of have four or five issues and they're going to have to, it's a little bit more complicated than a single kind of price negotiation. And so they can go back and forth with offers. They can go back and forth with comments. And then at the end, we sort of, typically we will cut it at about 30 minutes. Sometimes they finish earlier. And then again, there'll be a, a post negotiation survey and then we send them on their way. It's quite creative, isn't it? Your methodology. It must be quite fun coming up with all this stuff. It's really fun. Negotiation research is really fun, in part because it's so practical that whenever you have a set of findings, people are really curious about them. And the other is that it's really not difficult to get people to really get into the study. Sometimes there are questions about, well, it's kind of artificial, and you're not wrong. But I'm surprised by how much joy people express when they do well and um, how much disappointment they experience when they don't do well. So it's very engaging for folks. They really do get into it, and that is a pleasure. And of course, yes, coming up with all of the different kinds of negotiations is pretty interesting. So what were the results of this study? What did you find? So we ran, I believe, all told six or seven experiments. Uh, we were interested in looking at different kinds of populations and and making sure that what we found was robust. But, but in a nutshell, here's what we found. Indeed, as predicted, and has been found in other studies, people who negotiate with someone who is obese are far less generous than they are, and they're more demanding of their partner than they are when their partner is not obese. So we see that poor treatment that we've seen in other contexts. That's one finding. The second finding was that People who had reason to believe that the obese person did not cause his or her own obesity were also more generous with the other person. So let me say that again. We had manipulated whether the counterpart was responsible or not for his or her own obesity. That is, we said um, it was sort of diet-related or it was disease-related. And when the explanation was disease-related, the negotiator was much more generous, that they were feeling more empathy and they acted on that empathy with what might be called compassion. Uh, so that was really, that was a very powerful idea because it wasn't that across the board, people who are obese are treated poorly, which is what other studies have found. It was, it really does depend on a negotiator's interpretation of that person's situation. And what I really love and what I think has been happening is that people are taking that idea that empathy must be triggered by viewing someone as vulnerable and that is actually directing their behavior in negotiation. So if you're negotiating against somebody, why is it in your interest to be more empathetic? 
That is such a good question, but I'll tell you why. This is such a fundamental question in negotiation. Lots of us go into a negotiation and we assume that the best course of action is to try to wield our power and our smarts and try to grab as much as as we can from the other side and just run out the door as fast as possible. And there are some negotiations that that have that kind of property, right? Single issue, one-off, you're not going to see them again. Here's what I'm going to pay you for your TV that you've listed on eBay Marketplace. But most negotiations are not like that. Most negotiations, there are a range of issues, right? For instance, even if you're selling your used car, there's a price for the car. There might be some extras that you're willing to throw in, a tank of gas, new car mats, a car seat, a baby seat, whatever it is. Typically, negotiations have more than one issue. The only way to figure out the best split when you have a set of issues, more than a couple of issues, is to understand what the other person cares about and what I care about. So the essence of negotiation is, Kathy, if you can get me to sort of sit next to you and build a relationship with you, you and I are much more likely to exchange the information that we both need to package a deal that makes you happy and makes me happy. And so empathy in the way that we talk about it in in some of the research that we've done subsequent to this paper is really about getting in the mindset of recognizing that you don't dictate the outcomes in a negotiation. They're crafted between two people. You have a joint problem that you need to solve. And so the more empathy I feel, not that I'm going to make a lot of concessions to you, but I'd like to uh, develop a better, deeper, more accurate understanding of what your interests are at the table. And in fact, other studies that I've done much earlier in my career showed how important it is to develop that rapport, to be able to have honest conversations, to exchange accurate information about interests. And that's actually critical to getting good deals for both sides. And the happier, Kathy, you are in our negotiation, the more likely you are to honor the deal and the more likely you are to come back to me next time. And then we can really capitalize on the trust that we've been able to build. Uh, Yeah, because I guess also you're building a relationship for possible future negotiations, aren't you? Yeah, you cannot overestimate the importance of getting the other side to trust you in negotiation. And again, some naive negotiators will go in with sort of a club, a sledgehammer. And it's no surprise that those negotiations blow up. Or if you happen to have more power, you can certainly wield that sledgehammer. But that's not often, right? It's a much better method to go in hoping to build that kind of rapport. So there was also, I guess, a a side point to this, is there's probably advice for someone who is overweight or from another kind of stigmatized group, is that to the extent that the other side develops a bit of empathy, right, is able to see you for who you are, maybe bring a little bit more gentleness to negotiation, the better off you're going to be. It's an old-fashioned tactic in negotiation. It's called the belly-up bargainer. It's sort of expose your belly, kind of, you know, don't hurt me. It's a traditional old kind of tactic, and I think it has a place in this research as well. Interesting. So, so do let your guard down, in fact. Or at least, again, it's about bringing them closer and having them put their fists down and reach across the table with an open hand. So how do I get them to do that? That's what I want. Sometimes I negotiate and somebody will say, 
be careful, Kathleen teaches negotiation. And I'm like, ah, oh, come on, man, you're killing me because I want them to let their guard down. I want them to think of me as a partner in this negotiation. In fact, what I want them to do is pull their seat next to me and think of this as a problem that we're jointly trying to solve. I don't want them to have their fists up. So what other sort of tips do you have for, you know, successful outcomes in negotiations? One thing you talked about before was the fixed pie bias when we were chatting previously about this. So what, what else do we need to know in order to make our negotiations go you know, well for everyone? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this, Kathy, because after years of teaching negotiation, I've come up with an acronym that I think really nicely captures the advice that normally, frankly, I would teach over a 12-week semester, or sometimes I teach over a 10-week semester, or sometimes a half semester of, of six weeks, or maybe a block week. But the truth is, between you and me, I'm going to give you five tips that you can use, okay? You don't even have to pay for the MBA for this one. The acronym is called SHIFT. So let me walk you through what each of these letters stands for. Some of this is based, by the way, rooted in my research, or it's just rooted in really good um, research. So the first one is a classic. S is for separate interests from positions. Too often, Kathy, when we negotiate, we get really rooted in, you know, I want to make sure I get X, and we're not even paying it. Do I really need X? Am I paying it? Do I need X? Maybe I need something else and some other kind of offer will get me there. Let me, can I give you a real quick example on the separate interest from positions? I had a student years ago, I used to consult with students in negotiation and, and one of them said, I want to make sure that I, I want to be in the Atlanta office. I was working in America. I want to be in the Atlanta office in this consulting firm. And they weren't assigned to the Atlanta office. They were assigned to the Philly office. And they said, well, never mind. I'm not going to take the job. And, you know, the question was, well, that's a position, Atlanta. What are you really interested in? Well, I've got family in North Florida and I'd like to be able to spend more time with my family. Oh, well, that looks very different now. Now what you need are plane tickets and time off and remote working opportunity, right? Well, that's an interest that stands behind the position. Now we can actually get somewhere. So separate interest from positions. H is here the other side. Sometimes we're so interested in our own interests and reaching a deal that makes us happy that we're not listening when the other person is speaking to us. And I, I show negotiators this a lot when I say, okay, Prop up a phone and turn on the video and record yourself negotiating with someone else. And what they realize is that when they're speaking, they're looking across the table. And when the other person's speaking, they're looking down. And so they're not really able to hear, engage with the other side's ideas. And that's a problem. I is for invent solutions. So negotiation is less about kind of inching your way toward the midpoint and more about broadening the possibilities about where we go. What if we did this and what if we did this? And I guess that means kind of keeping a bit of an open mind or at least maybe maybe there's something you haven't thought of that could. Absolutely. I mean, what if the two of us got together and we found someone else to, to buy this for us, right? What if the classic example is, you know, is an orange, right? When we divide an orange and sometimes people are very clever and think about, well, how do I, how do we get together and sell that little green bit on the top, right? Being very creative. Um, F is for frame the negotiations of problems to be solved. Um, some of my early research found that when people thought that it heard the word negotiation, they thought conflict. And so I think that it's much better framing to think about this as a problem to be solved. You and I have a reason why we're sitting together. You're trying to sell something. I'm trying to buy it. You're trying to rent something. I'm trying to, you're trying to hire me. I'm trying to work for you. So I think that's important. And finally, 
and this kind of goes back to, to the eye a little bit, but think as broadly as you can. You're both inventing options and thinking creatively about which of those options is going to meet those interests. So it's shift. That's my advice to how to negotiate. I've literally written that down. So I'm going to like, <laughs> that's going to like see me through the next. It's really good. If I can, can I give you one or two more just to have, I they're just to have on the side. So I do a lot of teaching in our women's programs and women are often underestimated at the bargaining table. So people assume that women are going to take less. In fact, there were some really wonderful old studies of women showing up at car lots and being quoted much, much higher prices relative to men, which if you've ever had to negotiate for a car, you realize, I'm afraid this is going to happen to me. So I sent my husband to do it. Now the whole time my husband's there, I'm coaching him on the phone about what he needs to do. But that's okay. He's By virtue of the fact that he's a man and shows up, he's going to get a better offer than I am. So there's a lot of factors that shape men and women and, and, and their outcomes at the bargaining table, but women do tend to get underestimated. And one of the things I, I show women is that in general, this is a vast generalization, women do better when they're negotiating on behalf of someone else. In general, women don't feel as powerful and aren't as demanding when they're negotiating for themselves. So I've done hundreds of interviews of women. This is not probably a surprise to many women listening to this podcast. Imagine now you're negotiating for someone that you really cared about and for someone you respected, right? Maybe a colleague, a report, a family member. Women are tough in the trenches. And so there's something about that mama grizzly that kind of comes out. And so one of the things I often coach women to do is you need to negotiate as though you're negotiating on behalf of someone else. And for lots of women, it frees them up to ask for things. Now, the one caveat I would say is that the world does not like women who are who use the word I a lot. And so that's okay. We use the word we. If I'm negotiating on behalf of my department or negotiating on behalf of my group or negotiating on my own behalf, I use expansive communal language as much as I can, right? And I will pitch my demands in the form of how it helps the broader interests. Now, it can't always work that way, but when it does, it works really well. That's very pragmatic. Like, can't quite change the world, but, you know, find a way to work with. We cannot change the world. By the way, men and women underestimate women's power at the bargaining table. Men and women play hardball with women. So, yeah, we, we need to, I think, be thoughtful about those expectations now and again, use them to our advantage. If I know that the world wants me to behave in a communal, relational way, I can do that, right? And, and that's going to get me closer to where I want to go. So I don't know that you have to compromise everything you're about, but, but when it comes to negotiation, it's a very pragmatic exercise. You're trying to get as much as you, as you need from the deal. You're trying to meet your interests. So, um, so that's a trick that works really well. Well, I have to say, it's made me think completely differently about negotiations because I, do, I was very much seeing it at the start as, you know, you, you two people arrive with their positions, absolutely, you know, cut and dried, and there's kind of a winner and a loser. That's how most people, when they come into the negotiation course, this is how they see it. But can I push even a little bit further, Kathy, and give you something else? The person who has more power or who believes they have more power wins, especially when there's only one issue and say, for instance, price. So there are two things you can do to make that move in your direction to gain advantage. One is add more issues to the negotiations. So I've done some research on that and I'll explain that in a minute. The second is change their perception of your power. So one of the things, I don't advocate lying in negotiations, but what I do advocate is to kind of vaguely reference 
other options. Now, again, it's in a job situation. It might be, look, I just I want to be completely honest with you, Kathy, because you and I have, have been able to develop such a lovely relationship, and I and I want to make sure I'm being straightforward with you. I am in conversations with a couple of other groups, and so I just want you to know I'm very much focused on what we can do together because this is a place I can imagine spending the rest of my career. I could not be more excited. Do you see what I did? I sort of referenced something that. Now, I, I, I would like to say I am talking to some other groups, but it really is about letting you know that I've got an exit, and, but that I'm really excited about what we're going to do here. So kind of, I hope, you know, gives you a sense that you want to shift their beliefs about who has more power in this negotiation without getting into some kind of an awkward contest. And what if you come from, you know, what, what if you are overweight or if you belong to any of these groups that, are, that we know are discriminated against, what, what can you do to kind of up your chances then? So we do, Kathy, we're women, right? So we do belong to one of those groups, but, but yeah, absolutely. So there are a number, again, I want the other side to get to know me and to not think of me as being the powerful person at the table because that might undercut their willingness to help me. So I'm a little bit careful about this, but I do some work in private equity, and it's always amazing to me how there's a reputation for real hardball tactics, but the truth is people get to know each other, and people in private equity live in pretty small circles, and they travel in the same circles, and so I have, when I first started out, I thought, oh, they're going to be sharks in the water, but I believe that there's quite a bit of generosity there. So I want the other person to like me and to appreciate me. And if I'm from a stigmatized group, I don't, I want to be a little bit careful, but I, I want to be able to help that person understand how I got to where I am so that I can get them to say, ah, I'm not going to approach you with my fists up, but with a hand out. And I'm not sure if that's specific enough, but that's the kind of thing that I would, that I do. And that is kind of a belly up bargainer approach. So a lot of it does come down to just having an you know an ordinary human interaction with someone. I'm not going to disagree. I mean, listen, liking is a powerful force. You are going to attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. You right? You are the idea is to grab is is get them as close to you as possible. Nobody likes saying no to someone that they like. Nobody likes that, <laughs> right? In fact, we often say yes to people we like and then regret later that we said yes to them. Um, it's easy to say no to someone you don't like. So to the, to the extent that I can, you know, kind of sit next to a person, get to know them, give them a sense of what my story is. People use this tactic, don't they, all the time. You know, they'll write a letter, they give you a bit of a story. Now, you don't want to lay it on too thick because then people become uncomfortable. It feels awkward. But I think there's a, a vulnerability that can be worth sharing and that it, it does elicit some compassion on the other side. Great. Well, that's, that's been so interesting. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Is there anything else that you want to add that we left out that we need to add in? I don't think so. I, I think what I would say to men and women out there, don't be afraid to negotiate. You probably do it more than you think. And I think it really is being curious about the person across the table and trying to understand what it is that they're asking you for. And even if you can't deliver that, I bet you can get close and you can kind of form a partnership. So I'd like more women to negotiate and I think if you see it as a, as a puzzle, as a relationship, it just pulls the barriers down. As, it just, as you suggested, it feels like we're just kind of having a chat, right? Oh, we're having a chat. 
So that's my last bit of <laughs> advice, Kathy. Not, not sure I would dare go into negotiations with you, Kathleen, but... <laughs> But you know what? Honestly, my goal is to be creative. And then at the end of the day, I want to make sure I'm getting something from you, Kathy. So there's, you know, at the at the very end, I might, you know, I might kind of rattle your cage a little bit. But no, generally, I'm I'm actually a pretty good negotiator. Uh, I want you to come back is also critical. I want you to come back and say good things about me out in the world. Right? We live in very small worlds. <laughs> okay, good. Definitely a deal. Thanks for your time, Kathy. It's been a pleasure to chat to you about my research, and I really appreciate your interest. Thank you very much, Kathy. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips, tools and news for alumni direct to your inbox. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review or rating. That helps new listeners find us. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. 